This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, as uh, we've heard in our news, Congress reached a last-minute deal to avoid a government shutdown this weekend, just hours to spare on Saturday. The House and Senate passed a stopgap spending measure to keep the government open through mid-November. Each of Iowa's all-Republican U.S. Senate and U.S. House delegation voted with a majority of their chambers on Saturday to pass this last-minute funding deal. The legislation continues government funding at current levels for roughly 45 days. Now, we've learned a shutdown would have furloughed thousands of federal employees and halted or delayed government services. Some of the uh, deemed essential services would have continued. Um, Many federal employees would have had to work without pay until Congress reached a resolution. This hour, several Iowa perspectives on the shutdown that almost happened and may soon come again. Later, we'll be joined by the director of of public health for one of Iowa's counties, because Iowa's counties do administer federal dollars. Also, ag economist Chad Hart, as well as labor economist Peter Erasm of Iowa State University. But first, let's tackle the political dimensions of the near shutdown with Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. And due to her class schedule, she couldn't join us live. I spoke with her about an hour ago. Hi, Donna. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let's talk about the measure that passed just before midnight on Saturday. Uh, What was missing there, uh, notably funding for Ukraine, stripped from the bill. Um, Also, Kevin McCarthy now perhaps facing calls, uh, is in fact facing calls for his removal uh, for passing this bill with Democratic support. Let's put those two things to the side for a moment. Walk us through, Donna, what happened this weekend leading up to Saturday night. Well, um, one of the classes I'm teaching this semester is actually a class on Congress. And on Friday, we saw that the House failed to pass um, its continuing resolution. Um, There were uh, about 20-ish or so Republicans that didn't vote with that. And and, uh, Kevin McCarthy has a very small conference. He can only lose about four people out of that. And typically, um, in the House, the majority rules. And so the majority party has an upper hand in that. But if you have very small majorities and your conference is a little contentious, which is what Kevin McCarthy is dealing with, then it might be really problematic keeping that group together. And so we saw that fail on Friday. And I even told my class that the likelihood of a shutdown uh, was in the 90% range. It was quite high. Um, So it was a bit of a surprise then that uh, on Saturday, one of the options Kevin McCarthy had always had, but I didn't necessarily think that he would uh, proceed with that, was to move a uh, continuing resolution, that stopgap measure, and using Democrats to help him get that through the chamber. And that is what he ended up doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what does this tell you about McCarthy's leadership through all of this? I guess in, in hindsight, he perhaps had this deal uh, ready to do um, beforehand. It, did, was it apparent that he knew uh, he could get some sort of deal all along without a government shutdown? Well, I think that if he made certain concessions, he knew that he could get Democrats to go along because, you know, nobody wants a shutdown, as you mentioned in your introduction, right? The effects of that on average 
uh, people can be kind of high, especially if one is a federal worker, you don't get paid, for example, but it can have ripple effects in the economy. And so here we see, right, bipartisanship uh, on the notion of we want to avoid a shutdown. What the House was considering last week in their continuing resolution was not the same uh, components that we actually got on Saturday. They actually wanted to cut federal spending in the stopgap period by about 27 percent outside of defense. Um, and so that was something that uh, Democrats were not going to go along with. So what this continuing resolution does is give Congress some breathing room to try to get their regular bills done, um, but it extends funding during this period at current levels, not cutting it, which is what they tried to initially do, but but uh, keeping it at current levels. And historically, when we've seen continuing resolutions, that usually is what happens, is that funding is just continued uh, at current levels and to give Congress that breathing room to try to get their bills done. And then we should note here that at the end of this 45 days, uh, give or take, right, on November 17th, this runs out, there's another opportunity for a shutdown. So if Congress is not able to either get their bills done during this period or is not willing to do another continuing resolution, then we have the opportunity for a government shutdown as well. McCarthy, though, now is in a very difficult position because he did use Democrats. And that is something that does not sit well with all of the members of his conference. And so if we go back to January, when Kevin McCarthy got his speakership, uh, remember there were you know, a record-setting 15 votes before he did that. And he had to make concessions to get his gavel. Uh, one of the concessions that he made was to make it a little bit easier to do what we call a motion to vacate the chair. So one member of Congress can bring that up. And it's a privileged motion, meaning that Congress can't put it in the order of things. It has to come up. Um, and so during this, uh, if, if this is filed, and Matt Gates has now said based on McCarthy's behavior in this episode, that he will file this. If he follows through on that, we would see this probably come to fruition by the end of the week. McCarthy would then have to schedule it for a vote. Now, it could certainly be tabled in that process, or it could come to a vote. And if it comes to a vote, then uh, just a majority um, w could save his seat. But again, if we go back to the events of last week, his, his majority is not holding together very well. So will McCarthy survive this? I think it remains to be seen because with certain concessions, perhaps Democrats might be willing to help him save his seat. Uh, what would those concessions be? Could be um, you know, related to Ukraine funding. It could be related to all kinds of procedural things. We don't know what that looks like yet. Um, certainly Democrats aren't just going to, I think, support him with nothing. Um, but the, the um, concessions that he makes here could be quite small, if it even gets to that. Um, mm -hmm. But again, that will also not sit well with certain members of his conference. So he's in a particularly precarious position. To go back to the issue that you raised, that you know McCarthy maybe always had this in his back pocket, um, I think he always knew that at least potentially he could use Democrats. He wanted to try to avoid that in getting the CR precisely because of the things that are now coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about um, uh, Iowa's congressional delegation. Each of Iowa's members, uh, each member of Iowa's, these are all Republicans in the Senate and the U.S. House, the four in the House, and the, of course the two senators, voted with the majority of their respective chambers to pass this last-minute funding uh, deal. Um, was anything a surprise there? Um, how might a shutdown, um, have, especially a longer one, have impacted 
reelection prospects for members of uh, of the House from Iowa, for instance? Well, the public uh, maybe unfortunately doesn't have very long memories here. And so we don't usually see elections turning on one particular um, episode of congressional behavior. But certainly we're getting closer to that 2024 election. And this is critical for House members because they stand uh, for reelection every two years. And so they are paying attention to, you know, ripple effects within the economy. Um, that could affect their constituents, how they might be blamed uh, for various actions um, as well. But generally speaking, it is not good for the country, right, to, to go into a shutdown. We know in the last one, which set the record um, for the number of days, it was 35, I believe, um, that the economy, the CBO told us uh, that the economy um, took quite a hit. I think it was $8 billion because of that shutdown. And a shutdown where it might um, be about spending less, that was what Republicans in the House were trying to, to get to, uh, shutdowns actually end up costing us money, even if you are able eventually to get some cuts. They cost us money. And so, you know, the again, I would note that related to our congressional delegation here, the vote to move these bills both in the House and in the Senate ended up being very bipartisan. Um, they did not want to uh, shut the government down. There was another way to do this. Uh, give Congress some time to um, work out its spending bills, the 12 bills that in an, uh, that is what is called regular order, um, to try to move these things. Now, if they're able in the House especially to move these in the next 45 days, this is where we want to watch the congressional delegation of Iowa in particular, because the House wants to pass uh, bigger budget cuts in these. Those will be pretty much dead on arrival in the Senate. So um, we could find ourselves in 45 days back here again. Once we get down to the nitty gritty in the chambers of looking at the details of these bills, um, we'll have different behaviors of Democrats and Republicans again. Mm -hmm. um, before we end this conversation, Donna, funding for Ukraine, uh, notably stripped from this bill, uh, reflecting some of the Republicans uh, hardening opposition to helping Ukraine in its war against Russia. This came, I think, interestingly, despite the, the lobbying push both from the uh, senior Biden officials, also the highest ranking Republican senator, minority leader Mitch McConnell. What's going on here? So um, Ukrainian aid has become a little more contentious. I would note here, though, that it is still um, a bipartisan consensus in both chambers um, to support that. But we have seen a little bit of erosion there and some vociferous erosion with some members of the House Republican Conference um, in particular. And so, again, I think at the end of the day, because of the time pressures here and the contentious nature of this, the decision was made to facilitate getting the CR through, and that meant stripping that Ukraine aid out. Um, I do think that there's bipartisan support still to bring that up. It'll be more difficult in the House than in the Senate. Um, and I think, and again, given the what's going on in the House, this may be one of the bargaining chips potentially um, that Democrats in the House might have with McCarthy uh, if they are actually going to take a vote on vacating the Speaker and if Democrats are going to be persuaded to keep Kevin McCarthy in that chair. It could hinge around deals made on bringing this to a vote. Because if it's brought to a vote, uh, a majority vote in the House, it, it would succeed. And the same is true in the Senate. And so this was stripped out, I think, in the interest of avoiding a government shutdown, it being the most contentious piece of that, and uh, and then living to fight another day in terms of what happens later in the week and going forward in this 45-day period. Mm -hmm. Donna, before we go uh, to a break, in 30 seconds, what in the immediate future are you watching in the coming days? 
Well, we're watching, I'm watching in particular, um, the actions in the House to see how Kevin McCarthy navigates this, um, this contentiousness within his conference that has been there since he got his gavel back in January. We knew this was a problem for him, potentially, um, that it was a really uh, difficult divide for him to navigate. And so we'll see if Matt Gates follows through on his promise here to do a, a motion to vacate. We'll see if his support in the House actually erodes, because I can see a scenario in which Republicans marginalize him and maybe do not support this effort or that the vast majority mm-hmm. of okay. them do. And so I think you have a lot of dynamics there to watch this week in the House. Donna Hoffman, professor of political science at the University of Northern Iowa. Donna, always good to hear your analysis. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Back in just a moment with more of River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. And we're back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, uh, talking about the shutdown narrowly averted on the weekend, but uh, we're uh, looking at that stopgap measure, um, only keeping the uh, federal government open until mid-November. This hour, several Iowa perspectives on the shutdown that almost happened may come uh, again soon. Uh, we'll see. Um, let's let's talk with Danielle Pettit-Majeski. Uh, Danielle is director of the Johnson County Public Health. Uh, Danielle, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. We're talking to you because uh, Iowa counties administer federal dollars. So we're interested in finding out the degree to which a potential shutdown, a a shutdown that may be in our future, would affect uh, counties administering these federal dollars. What federal dollars for you in Johnson County Public Health are you most concerned about when a shutdown threatens? Well, so I think our biggest concern would be the impact that uh, a shutdown would have on WIC, our Women, Infant, and Children program. Uh, We're a subcontractor for HACAP and uh, Cedar Rapids, and we're able to serve both Johnson and Iowa County families with benefits such as um, coupons for formula, information about healthy eating, um, healthy food vouchers, you know, really to help um, pregnant women and um, children zero to five get the healthiest start in life. Yeah. And suitably here, you have you have an infant at home there. We thank you so much for joining us. But it is. Yes, uh, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no apologies necessary. We're happy uh, that you're there with a, a young Iowan uh, there. Uh, if you can endure this a few minutes, we can certainly oh, uh, manage to, to hear something in the background, uh, uh, to hear um, a, a child in the background. Well, what what does this what did this shutdown threat look like from your perspective as um, a, a health ad, a health administrator at a county level? Well, we were still having conversations with our with our state partners to hear what kind of impact that this would have. We we've seen various impacts over the years when we have had um, previous shutdowns, and sometimes the state has had 
you know, kind of a, a backstop where they were able to continue to provide benefits to our clients, um, even during a government shutdown. But the last time I had talked to them on Friday, you know, we knew that it would not impact SNAP benefits, but that they weren't sure yet the impact it would have on WIC. And I think the biggest concern is, you know, we've already seen the reduction of the child tax credit, and we have seen an increase in WIC utilization in the last several years, increasing food costs. There's just been a there's just a lot of barriers for for families who are trying to provide nutritious uh, foods to their families. Um, so this is really concerning as we're thinking about what that impact would look like locally. Yeah, you said no impact of a shutdown on SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as the Food Stamp Program. Why not yeah. that being affected? You know, not not quite sure. Those those that was just the information that we had received on Friday from our state partners mm-hmm. that they didn't think that SNAP was going to be impacted for the month of October, but they were still trying to make a determination about WIC. Um, grateful that we have a reprieve for 45 days uh, and until November 17th, but just concerned that you know families are going to have to worry about this again um, right before the holidays. Yeah. Now that you have a bit of a breather, we do across the country in in many ways. Are you preparing, uh, you and other similar administrators in other Iowa counties, preparing for that um, worst-case scenario? I guess you have to, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you you want to make sure that you're you're able to share resources about where folks can access food. But you know, I think one of the biggest concerns is you know we saw what happened with with the formula shortage about a year and a half ago. You know, and and just the expense of formula for babies, especially if they are on a, a specific um, formula that that might be um, very specific to their nutritional yeah. needs, whether there's allergens or or other issues. You know, so wanting to make sure that people have access to those to those foods it's just it's a really hard um, barrier to climb because they're quite they're quite expensive um, so we're just really trying to have conversations with our elected officials and talk to them about the importance of the program I know we've had our our state senators reaching out um, to see what they can do to share information about our program and so we're really hoping you know this should be a nonpartisan issue um, making sure that women and children are, are fed so we will continue yeah. to to um, educate about the importance of the program and the importance to Iowa families to continue to receive these services. Danielle, did your department there in Johnson County get calls? Uh, were people worried about those uh, WIC uh, uh, special nutrition program dollars for women, infants, and children? Well, there were there was definitely some some. Um folks reaching out to us, um, elected officials reaching out to us. There were some of our clients wondering about um, a reduced benefit um, looking at for October, and those were because of the proposed reduction in the farm bill. You know, as I said, we have seen an 18% increase in WIC utilization, and we have not seen, you know, the funding um, levels necessary to really cover the increase in demand. So we are hoping that they will look at a bipartisan bill that will um, really meet the need of, of really everybody who participates with this program. Okay. Daniel Pettit-Majeski, thank you very much, Director of Johnson County Public Health. We'll let you get back to your infant. Take you, uh, thank you so much for, for letting us barge in on your day there with your little yes. one. No, no problem. Um, Again, I appreciate you um, bringing this issue to the forefront. It's really important. Okay. Thank you.
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking about the shutdown, narrowly averted on the weekend. The aftermath of that, several Iowa perspectives we thought you'd enjoy uh, being informed about on the shutdown. Uh, that almost happened, and as we've been hearing, may soon come again as as early as November. Chad Hart is with us now, professor of economics, crop market specialist, and extension specialist at ISU. Hi, Chad. Hi, Ben. How are you today? I'm doing fine. So, broadly speaking, what are the chief ways uh, a federal government shutdown would have affected our ag economy? Well, it always depends upon the timing of the shutdown when it comes to agriculture. As we looked at this last round, as we're sitting here, the idea is it was hitting at a time when typically we see a lot of agricultural payments starting to flow out from the federal government. So the timing here for an October shutdown would have impacted those that are known as commodity title programs. So you can think of those as the the farm bill programs that provide direct support to farmers. It would have also hit conservation payments that were coming out. So our our landowners that own CRP or enrolled in sort of those environmental programs, those payments tend to come out here in October. So those would have been delayed. We also would see um, a dearth of the reports that usually come out from USDA on crop and livestock production as we enter the fall, and those have market implications as we move forward. So there's a variety of ways that a shutdown definitely impacts agriculture. Mm Mm-hmm. How much of the U.S. Department of Agriculture would have stopped working? Do you have a a read on that? Um, It's hard to say on a percentage basis, but the idea is we would have seen um, entities that I work for, for example, within USDA, the National Ag Statistics Service, most of them are considered non-essential. The Agricultural Marketing Service is the one that daily reports on pricing. A lot of them would have been considered non-essential. But you also would have seen some that are considered essential when we're looking at our meat inspectors at our uh, federal meat processing plants. Those would have continued as we look out there. We would also seen a lot of um, the research folks that have ongoing research that depends upon either, you know, feeding of the animals or maintaining of the crops. They're considered essential this time around. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, Chad, uh, as best you can, because you have a lot of contact with uh, farmers around the state, what is your sense of the farmer's perspective on looming shutdown threats, the uncertainty connected with them? Is this something uh, your typical farmers uh, worry a lot about, a little about, not at all? Uh, I I would say they're worried somewhat from both, let's call it a time in a payments perspective, but also because of the debate around the farm bill. The idea is there hasn't been a lot of forward progress with the farm bill because a lot of the oxygen in Congress was sucked up in this discussion about a continuing resolution. And so this 45-day window now offers up an opportunity to make some progress on the farm bill, which helps set federal farm policy for the next five years. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little more about the farm bill. This um this delayed the passage. I think the, the the potential threat of this shutdown delayed the passage of the farm bill. This is an enormous spending package due for a reauthorization uh, at the end of September. Uh, the farm bill passed every five years to cover programs uh, ranging from what crop insurance, Chad, to to uh, healthy food is a big part of it for low income families. Um, uh, there. Uh, what are the further implications of of delayed renewal? Well, with this, we have been in a 
period, if you will, of delayed renewal before on the farm bill. The last several farm bills have gone beyond their expiration date, and Congress has sort of retroactively fixed them as we've went forward here. But it does bring up a lot of uncertainty. As your previous panelists mentioned, the idea is the nutrition title within the farm bill. That covers SNAP and WIC benefits there. That's roughly 75 to 80 percent of the, the farm bill budget, if you will. So setting those parameters around those two programs has a great deal about, you know, sets the budget for agriculture as we move forward. But it's also determining those conservation programs. How, how do they move as they go forward? And our commodity title, I'd say for our farmers, a lot of it is discussing what that safety net should look like coming from the federal government for agriculture over the next five years. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, some ins- uncertainty that many farmers wished were not there until this gets settled. Yes. You know, the idea is that it's one of these deals of you're operating a farm business, you would like to sort of know what are the rules and regulations that you're going to operate that business in over the next five years. Yeah. When we think about a government shutdown and, and hopefully will not have one uh, come November after this uh, stopgap method runs out. Uh, 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 is there a quantifiable cost to the ag economy for a shutdown? We've had several of them in prior years. We have had several of them in prior years. I believe it was the, the first panelist you had put on the idea of that when we look back at the last shutdown we had, which was 35 days, the idea is it cost the economy billions of dollars. And ag would be part of that slice. Now, there's not a direct measure of how much of the ag economy was hit during that time. And like I say, it would depend upon the timing here. As we look at an October shutdown, that is, I would say, more impactful for agriculture than if we're looking at a shutdown, say, in March or April, just because of the timing of a lot of the payments that go into agriculture. Mm-hmm. Chad, we've got another five minutes left. Uh, unless Did you have any other sort of shutdown or shutdown threat-related aspects that need mentioning. Otherwise, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the crops as it's harvest time. Yep. In this case, I would say the other thing when you're looking at it from an ag perspective is that the USDA does have some flexibility to determine, if you will, what is essential and what is a non-essential. And, and that is something that we did see some changes in from USDA in this run-up to this shutdown versus what we saw four or five years ago, we did see USDA make different changes in terms of who is essential and who would continue to work through a shutdown versus who was considered non-essential. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, driving around Iowa this weekend, I'm sure you've been out in the, in the fields uh, too, seeing the fields, uh, harvest well underway, a lot of dust in the air, of course, <laughs> related to any harvest, unless we have a real wet fall, I guess, but uh, the air, uh, those combines stirring up a lot of uh, dust uh, as they move through the fields. Where are we th- with the harvest, Chad? Well, that's the deal. Harvest is moving well along. The idea is that the drought uh, sort of hastened on the harvest period. So we are running ahead of schedule in terms of bringing that crop in. As you mentioned, as we bring that crop in, we are seeing the dust fly as the combines run out there. Most of what I've been hearing from farmers would say um, that the crops are coming out a little better than they expected, given the the hotter, drier conditions they face this year, but there's also a lot of variability as we look around the state. And it sort of changed from the last couple of years. When you think about the droughts we saw in 21 and 22, those were more based in western Iowa. 
Here, as we look in 2023, we've seen a lot more of those impacts move to the northern and eastern parts of the state. And so it's, it's a mixed bag as you drive around as to how the weather events of this year have, have impacted yields. But we're looking at, on average, I would say corn yield right around what we saw last year. Soybean yields probably a bushel or two below what we averaged last year. And how much is that uh, less than what we would say in a really good harvest year? Well, as we're looking on the corn side right now, USDA's estimate for Iowa is 200 bushels per acre. So you're still talking about a very strong yield. I believe our record's around 204. So Mm. despite the problems, we are still looking at a very good crop there. On the soybean side, the estimate is 58 bushels per acre. We've averaged over 60 before. So it's, again, a few bushels down from the from the record yields that we've seen, still very strong yields, but not quite as high as we can achieve. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about how the drought has shifted and varies uh, across the state. Over in the up in the uh, northeast part of the state, uh, we've got that big, uh, what is it, category three or four extreme drought, don't we, still? We do. We have seen that drought deepening, especially as we look at the northeast part of the state and sort of extending out into the eastern side of the Corn Belt. And so I would say the focus um, from an agricultural perspective has shifted from how the drought is impacting production to how it's impacting logistics. As we look at bringing this crop into harvest, we're thinking about, you know, moving it to those, those market consumers out there, and especially in the case of soybeans, moving into the export market. So looking at how the drought is affecting the Mississippi and the Ohio as far as restricting those shipping lanes, creating some problems mm. as we try to reach the export markets. Yeah. I suppose a silver lining, um, um, not as a, a farmer, but it comes to mind that, you know, in the past years we've had to, in, in wet falls, wet harvest seasons, they have the crops have to be dried with a lot of use of propane and so forth. We don't have that this year generally. We don't have it as much this year. That is true. And so, you know, there's, there's usually a little bit of benefit, um, from some of the pain that we go through here. So it is true that the crops are coming out drier. Although I've also heard a few stories about harvest fires as well. So the idea is that it's a balancing act again. You want it dry, but not too dry where we start to light a fire in the combine. Yeah. Okay. So a harvest fire, can you get a fire spreading across, across a field of really dry corn? Um, we can like get that. We have seen it at times, um, sort uh-huh. of. We have seen a few fires like that, and and believe it or not, that's part of the thing that that is covered by crop insurance at times. So it it does matter here. And as we're looking at um, the impact that the drought has had, that is that is one of the extensions here of that it can dry the crops down enough that it can create other hazards out in the field. Okay, Chad Hart, professor of economics. Uh, crop market specialist and extension specialist at ISU. Chad, always great to have your expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. When we come back, uh, we'll check in with another professor of economics, uh, more labor economics at ISU. Uh, Our friend uh, Peter Arasm will give us his view on the shutdown narrowly averted um, and uh, how that... uh, will affect us here in the Midwest uh, as we have this stopgap measure. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. 
Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. So good to have you with us midstream on this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The shutdown narrowly averted on the weekend, a stopgap measure in place, but uh, only keeping the federal government open until mid-November. We'll hope for a solution before then. Um, At least most of us will, I suppose, depending on your political perspective. There is the perspective out there that a a shutdown would be good, but uh, that's a, a discussion for another day this hour. Several Iowa perspectives on the shutdown that uh, almost happened may soon come again. Our final perspective of the hour, we check in with uh, uh, Peter Arasm, professor of economics at Iowa State University. Hi, Peter. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Glad to have you on board today. What would have been the major impacts to the economy had the federal government shut down, had it not been averted and we heard earlier political scientist uh, Donna Hoffman saying, you know, going into the weekend was sort of like 90 percent chance that we're going to have another shutdown. What would have been the major impacts on the economy? Well, it, it sort of depends on how long it would have lasted and uh, how much pain it would have uh, generated. I mean, some activities, I mean, the Postal Service would still be running. Air traffic control is 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 considered essential. Uh, some of the things that we rely on, like Social Security uh, and Medicare, are funded outside the the Appropriations Committee, and so uh, appropriations bills, and so they would have continued. Uh, and then other things like the national parks and museums uh, would have been uh, shut down, and it would have been more difficult to get. Uh, payments process, so a lot of workers would have uh, uh, left their their work and and would be considered non-essential things that perhaps could be resolved at a at a later date. I think it's important to remember that the the last shutdown went for a long time, but they had already passed some of the appropriation bills, so it it was a partial shutdown of the government. This would have been more complete. So we go from about eight hundred thousand. Uh, employees affected to 1.9 million federal employees. And and so this would have been a much larger uh, shutdown. Um, and so the, the potential damage could have been much larger. Mm-hmm. A shutdown costs uh, big money. I don't know if nearing a shutdown this closely costs money. Um, but, you know, you know, granted, depending on the length of the, the, the shutdown, but I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about why a shutdown uh, costs millions, uh, even more than that. Uh, I mean, it's it's not a light switch, right? Flick it on, flick it off. Uh, there's There are reasons for these costs. What are they? Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose one, one way of thinking about it would be suppose that you had a strike, right? And so you stop production of automobiles. Well, some things are already in process, and so uh, you may be able to continue some economic activity. But as it goes longer, uh, sales that would have occurred don't occur. 
um, um, uh, the ability to uh, to access the right model or the or 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 uh, to have um, um, uh, the right parts that you might need for your automobile. The longer those things go on, the more costly mm. they become. You can sort of see the same things happening. So suppose I'm a contractor with the federal government, and suddenly my contract, uh, the money dries up. Uh, I have to pay my employees. I've been told that I'm no longer going to be um, uh, working for this period of time. I rely on that for my business, and about one-third of the U.S. economy are federal contractors or subcontractors. Uh, All of those things then become a cost that somebody has to bear, and the longer that those disruptions occur, the more you're running into people who cannot pay their, their bills. And so there are going to be cascading uh, impacts on the rest of the economy. Most of the shutdowns that we've had um, uh, since the mid-70s have been really short and probably not that consequential. Um, but very long shutdowns can... Um, the costs become uh, become much larger than what would be true if it was relatively brief. Mm-hmm. Do we know, based on the past shutdowns we have, how a shutdown, depending on its length again, impacts economic growth? Is is there any kind of formula you can put to work there? X number of days shutdown equals uh, the uh, tamping down of the economic the, the growth numbers. Well, one way of thinking about it is how large is the federal government relative to the rest of of the economy in terms of employment? Because largely what we're talking about is disrupting employment. And so uh, there are 1.9 million federal employees, 98, 99% of them work within the United States. Only 8% of them are in the District of Columbia. So the rest of them are scattered around all the rest of the states. Uh, Iowa, with about 0.4% of our uh, workforce, uh, we only have about 0.4% of the federal employees. So it probably wouldn't be as disruptive of our labor market as it would be some of the other uh, states where uh, they have a much larger share of those 1.9 million uh, employees. So it sort of depends on where you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. How do you see this period of uncertainty that we've entered with the stopgap measure um, uh, that goes through the mid, uh, mid-November? Well, I, I think the bigger issue is, uh, is this going to have repercussions in terms of how people view the federal government as a, <laughs> as a provider of services and as a customer of, of, of private sector services? Uh, the more that we think that that the the process of appropriating money in Washington is broken, the less faith people have in the federal government. I think that's a much larger concern. I mean, when they talk about you know, okay, you may have some delayed payments, assuming that the the shutdown is relatively brief. You know, for the most part, you may be delaying things a little bit. There may be some nuisance costs associated with that. But, you know, unless it drags on for an extended period of time, it's not going to be that expensive. But it does change how you view the federal government and whether you want to do business with the federal government. And Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that there's not as much uh, faith in in our uh, federal institutions to begin with, this just makes people, I think, much less secure in how they view 
uh, the national government. And at the end of the day, that can't be a good thing, right? Uh, I mean, growing up, I always, you know, you always thought of senators and congressmen as these very respected, smart, um, uh, to some extent, institutions. And even if they weren't the one you voted for, you still had a lot of admiration for them. I don't think that uh, anybody comes out of this process looking all that admirable. Mm -hmm. You know, Peter, I was reading reports on our country and this near shutdown uh, put out by the BBC, and it was interesting, an article I came across that, you know, said the U.S. government has shut down 10 times over the past 40-plus years. Other countries, meanwhile, keep functioning, even in the midst of wars and constitutional crises. Why does this seem to be uniquely American? Uh, why does it keep happening? I understand it has some roots going back to the 1970s. Well, who knows, right? I, I think that um, the last few years... Uh, uh, the way our political system functions has has certainly been disrupted. Uh, and, you know, it's really hard to look at this particular uh, near shutdown and try to figure out, okay, what was the real purpose of, of this shutdown? Was it to try to uh, uh, undercut uh, Speaker McCarthy and and so have a change of leadership in the Republican Party. Well, you know, when you listen to individuals, they don't actually have in mind who the replacement is going to be. But if you get rid of uh, the Speaker of the House, all business of the of the of the Congress shuts down. Maybe that's the whole point is that there's some people who just liked uh, the thought of having a, a dysfunctional government and, and one of the ways to make it dysfunctional is to refuse to cooperate with one another. I mean, growing up, yeah. you know, in middle school and high school, I mean, we always, you know, we're told that compromise is how we get things done uh, in a federal system like uh, the United States. Uh, well, compromise sort of doesn't seem to be one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, prime motivators <laughs> in Washington these days. Yeah, uh, seven or eight minutes left with uh, uh, economist Peter Erasm of Iowa State University. Unless you had another point that was left unmentioned about the near shutdown, did you? Well, I, I think there is one thing that yeah. you may want to talk about, and that is that another sure. thing that happened uh, yesterday is now students are going to have to start paying their loans again. There you go. Okay. So what should those with student loans uh, pay attention to? We, uh, those uh, people will, will have notices and say, now it's time to, to start chipping back, chipping away at your debt, right? Well, that's true. I mean, the way they they actually made this operational was they just changed the interest rate on your on your uh, outstanding loans to zero percent over the the last roughly three years um, during the pandemic and the post pandemic recovery. Uh, the average student loan payment for people who have loans is is roughly five hundred dollars a month. So that's a lot of money that sure is. people weren't having to, to pay back. And and then uh, all of a sudden now they're going to have to start paying that back. And, uh, you know, it's fine if you've planned for that. 
One of the concerns that, that we have is that uh, a lot of, of the people with student loans uh, weren't really planning uh, for the resumption of that, that payment period, and they made other commitments that they're now going to have trouble uh, fulfilling. So one of, there's a study in the National Bureau of, uh, by uh, researchers at the National Bureau of Economic Research that found that uh, students who, who got the, the loan abatement, uh, the loan payment abatement over that period of time actually incurred more debt uh, over that period of time by uh, you know, getting uh, new cars or, or um, uh, mortgages or other obligations. And, and now all of a sudden they're gonna come back to a situation where on average they're gonna be paying $500 uh, for their student loans plus um, the other interest payments and a lot of them may end up in, 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 in trouble. So we had 44 million uh, people who had student loans going into the pandemic, about 15% of them were behind. Um, but I have a sneaky suspicion that we'll have a lot more uh, uh, people who are going to have uh, some trouble meeting their their financial obligations over the next few months, and I think that may be a bigger issue than than uh, some of the other issues that we've got going in the country right now. Mm-hmm. Well, we have the UAW strike currently in its third week uh, against the Detroit uh, three automakers: General Motors, Ford, and uh, the Chrysler parent Stellantis. Um, describe how you see where we are in this uh, automotive workers' strike. Well, uh, if you're going to have a strike, this is a really good time uh, to have one. Uh, normally, you want to to strike when uh, the firm doesn't have a lot of alternatives for uh, for uh, workers who are on strike. Um, I, the last. Uh, uh, monthly information that we have was 3 million unfilled vacancies in the United States. So we still have very strong labor market uh, and firms that don't have enough workers to go around. So I think this is a situation where you're going to have as good a bargaining position if you're labor as, as we've had in, in many, many years. And so I think that this is a, a good time to be negotiating for an increase, whether they're going to get everything they want. They, you never get everything that you want, but uh, they should be in a strong bargaining position. Yeah, we, we, we see polls, though, too, and I wonder if it's related to what you just said, uh, that the, the U.S. labor movement's efforts have sort of broad national support now, uh, more support than they had in previous years. Uh, what are your thoughts about why attitudes may have become more sympathetic to the demands of organized labor? Well, I think part of it is that you did have, uh, particularly in the, in the early um, uh, months of, of the pandemic, I mean, a lot of firms uh, ended up with uh, a sharp increase in, in profits. Part of that was that prices were rising. We had all uh, constraints on supply. And so when demand outstrips supply, there's upward pressure on prices. Well, if you've already got inventory, you're selling that inventory at a higher rate than what you expected. And so you're, you end up with a very good year or two. Uh, and so some of those uh, announcements of very high um, uh, profits, I think, are part of it. The other is that in fe- uh, after the first six months or so, inflation started rising more rapidly than wages. And so if real wages are going down in an inflationary environment and people are seeing that, that uh, firm profits have gone up, I think 
sympathy naturally goes to to workers. And there are a lot more workers he, than there are employers. Yeah. In the final minute or so that we have, uh, any words to the impact of the UAW strike so far uh, in Iowa? Iowa, not one of the leading automotive um, uh, production states, uh, no, but there are UAW members, uh, suppliers, uh, feeding the automotive industry, certainly in Iowa, right? Right. I, and I think that uh, one of the interesting things about the UAW strike, which is somewhat different, number one, it's uh, um, uh, against all three uh, major automobile companies, but of course it doesn't include the foreign-owned companies that operate in the United States. And so to some extent, uh, there is a substitute for uh, the consumer if, if they want an immediate satisfaction of their, uh, of their need for a, a, a new car. Um, but, um, I think the, um, uh, uh, as, as, as far as, uh, the, the implications for, for, uh, Iowa, I think a lot more of it is going to be how this, uh, agreement, uh, is, is forged. So generally we're going to have a move away from internal combustion engines toward, uh, electric vehicles, um, Iowa, electric vehicles aren't a very good fit for Iowa in part because yep. cold weather is bad for batteries and, and, right. and so is mileage. So I think I'm curious to see what type of automobiles we're going to end up producing from a perspective of not just the big three, but the other con- uh, companies as well. And I think that's going to be c- the bigger impact on Iowa. Thanks for coming into the studio, Peter Erasm of Iowa State University. Thanks, Peter. Oh, well, thank you for having me. A lot of help on today's program. We want uh, our program today produced by Danny Gear, Tony Daner, Phil Moss, Sean McLean, uh, Steve Cooper, Sam McIntosh, and Catherine Perkins, all assisted. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.